Hello, and thank you for clicking and listening to the Police One Podcast, Policing Matters, Walking the Beat with Leaders and Experts. My name is Doug Wiley. I'm Editor-in-Chief of PoliceOne.com, and... Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. I'm retired San Francisco policeman, and I currently teach uh, criminal justice studies at San Francisco State University. Jim, you want to get your uh, caveat out of the way here? Sure. So... <laughs> The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of my own. Uh, uh, hopefully, uh, my experience will show through in, in forming those opinions. Uh, they don't reflect on the San Francisco PD or the university previously mentioned. And I have felt for years that everyone's entitled to my opinion. <laughs> so the Police One podcast, Policing Matters, um, this new experiment in um, a new format for us to serve you, Police One members, and members of the public who come to Police One to learn about law enforcement and get themselves a little bit more educated as to what law enforcement is all about. We are going to be looking at, uh, Jim and I, a wide variety of issues, ideas. We'll be discussing those ideas with not just ourselves, but um, members of the uh, academic community, members of the scientific community, and members of the actual community. Uh, Jim, you, you have a very good uh, way of expressing the, the scope we're, we're going to be looking at. Yeah, well, you know, Doug and I have uh, been kicking around policing matters for, for several years now. Um, we first met on a panel uh, at a San Francisco police symposium a few years back. And um, every once in a while we talk about uh, things that are um, timely and, and in the press. And... Uh, there's a lot of information out there, a lot of experts who would love to talk about policing issues but don't really have a forum or a platform to do so. So hopefully this will be a platform. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, get ideas from you, hear your perspective, and uh, tell us how we're doing. Yeah, and you can do that by emailing policingmatters at policeone.com. We are eager to serve you. We're uh, very interested to hear from you, and uh, we're thankful uh, and appreciative that you've clicked on our program and listened to us today. Every podcast, Ty, every time we meet for a podcast, we're going to uh, try to look at some of the current events and, you know, kind of analyze them a little bit. Um, first up for this particular segment is uh, recently we had seen Quentin Tarantino um, make some vile uh, and um, upsetting comments at a, uh, a Black Lives Matter rally. And it was interesting to see um, immediately thereafter a whole bunch of police unions. I lost count how many. Um, a great many representing over 300,000 officers as far as we can tell um, saying they're going to boycott Tarantino's new picture I won't even name it um, and it seems also to me that there's also a grassroots movement of officers and those who support law officers to, um, to, to, to be up in arms about those statements yeah and you know I think the timing was bad I, the, it was four days after a New York police officer was killed um, and then Tarantino goes off to decry all police officers as murders or generalized police right. officers as murders, which I always find is ironic that the people who claim that officers brush them with a broad stroke in turn do the, exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. 
And for someone who makes a profit off of for just the worst kind of violence you could see. Um, I remember when Pulp, Pulp Fiction was huge. Um, I'm not a big fan of that kind of um, uh, film. Uh, Reservoir Dogs torturing a police officer in a garage um, and dancing to it. I mean, all that just makes me sick. And I was, I was never a big Tarantino fan, anyhow. Mm -hmm. um, but it surprised me. Maybe he saw it as an opportunity so close to the release of this film to garner some exposure and, and bring light to the fact that his movie was coming out. And maybe, maybe this feeds into his plan. Well, it seems to me almost every single time he's released a picture, if memory serves, there's been so, he's done something or said something about someone or you know, done something salacious, something kind of, yeah. you know, something that would make folks like you and me get a little sick to our right, stomach. Right. I think it's just a modus operandi. I think it is a publicity grab. I think that he, while he, and, but at the same time, I think he's sincere. You know, meanwhile, his own father, who by all accounts, it seems has some connection to NYPD, came out and said, you know, look, my son's passionate. He's wrong about this. Right. You know? Right. So it's, I, I think it's interesting. My, my main concern about the whole thing is that um, we're, we're, we're perpetuating it too uh, and having a conversation about it. But I think it's important that we look at the response of the law enforcement officer. And, and the community that supports law enforcement that has actually come out and said, you know what, this will not stand. No, I, I totally agree with you. At the same time, I think now the, the climate is that we can have some real dialogue on policing, on values-based policing, on how we interact with people in the community. And rather than take the opportunity to have a meaningful dialogue, uh, just for instance, a week ago it, at um, the university, there was a, a rally against pr police brutality in mm -hmm. the middle of the, the university. And um, there were chalk outlines on the ground and people were talking about the limits that they want the police, um, you know, limiting uh, use of force, limiting uh, being present at uh, events and things like that. And then they announced a, an individual who wrote a poem to speak to the anti-policing, police brutality theme. So I was crossing campus. I figured, well, I want to hear this, to hear what the young man has to say. He got up and said to the 30 or 40 students listening, I want, to, I want you to repeat after me. And he goes on to repeat, F the police, three times in a row. And of course, he had the response from the crowd. And, and I walked away shaking my head saying, here the guy really had an opportunity to make a statement, small crowd, but still make a statement, make it powerful, make it meaningful. But instead, that's the rhetoric, mm -hmm. right? And what does that get you? So I see it akin to Tarantino's taking this opportunity, grandstand, say something just god awful and walk away with, without expecting any kind of ramifications well. He's going to get what he what he put out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's if passes prologue, he's going to make millions on the movie no matter what. Um, next up on the list is uh, an incident in San Diego, which was originally called in as an active shooter and turned into a barricaded subject incident. Um, they had to shut down the airport. Uh, you know, of course, uh, anyone who's been to San Diego and flown into that airport knows that there's residences and high-rise buildings pretty much right in the glide path of the end of the runway down to San Diego and. Um, the thing that I took away from that most, now the subject was taken into custody without incident. Um, you know, it was, it was a four or six hour, I can't remember long, um, uh, standoff. 
the, the coppers did a tremendous job down there, quite clearly, a great job. So kudos to them on everything. The thing that troubled me was how many people in the surrounding area were, were tweeting out pictures of law enforcement activity um, and, and kind of giving away where the snipers were setting up their, their spots, giving away where, you know, a lot of the tactical stuff that was going on to try and fix this issue uh, with no loss of life. And incidentally, there was no loss of life. This guy was just taking pot shots at the airport tarmac, it looks like. Sure. But that's, we need to, and we need to get our, our agencies out there to be really responsive and, and make sure every single time there's any kind of a tactical scenario to say, to tweet out to the community, because those people are on Twitter, don't give away our, our stuff because right. it could injure folks, right. right, Jim? Well, that's it. The social media uh, pushing out of information from law enforcement to the public for safety, for information, that's uh, all well and good, but uh, invariably that information could land into the hands of the people that you don't want it to. Mm -hmm. And we've it's happened numerous times. In the years past, we've seen it from, from the media. We've seen news helicopters giving away tactical locations, mm -hmm. um, compromising SWAT officers moving into a barricaded subject. Um, we've seen victims filmed and described and they walk mm -hmm. out in front of the cameras and we know who they are and we know what, what they just went through. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've seen that in the past, but now with cameras and social media being ubiquitous, uh, Instagram and Facebook and mm -hmm. Twitter and uh, Snapchat, uh, it's really going to be hard to control. And, and people are going to say, hey, it's my First Amendment right to put this out over the net or, or in the public social media. You have a First, a First Amendment right to free speech, but just as you may not say fire in a crowded movie theater, there are limitations, and there has to be a reasonable limitation based on the, the time, the place, and you know, and the scenario, the, the situation at hand, sure. and I think that, that the Supreme Court has certainly upheld that. Mm -hmm. um, there, it's going to be tricky, and I think that it's going to take social media experts within law enforcement to figure this out. You know, I think the PIOs have done a pretty good job of getting the helicopters to go away. The news media has been more cooperative sure. in the last few years, um, but it, it, we're going to have to be really, really savvy um, from our side to, to try and figure out a way to make sure that at least as few of those images get out as possible. Right. You can never stop you know, the, 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 the universe from doing its thing. But if people are more savvy, and I think it's just a drumbeat of information going out there, not just based on when an incident happens, but, you know, making sure you're connecting with your social media um, connections, uh, whatever they may be, and hopefully they spread the word for us. Um, yeah, it's a sensitive subject, though. So, you know, you talk about Supreme Court talking about time, place, and manner, mm -hmm. that we can regulate it. But... Um, we also say that there's no expectation of privacy in a public place. Right. Um, law enforcement agencies have had to crack down on their own sworn officers to keep from putting this information out and make it right. a disciplinary case. If someone, uh, we during the Occupy movement, um, I know we were compromised several times by officers uh, tweeting or taking mm -hmm. photos of themselves saying, tonight's the night we're gonna go yeah, for the that. operation. And, yeah. and so, um, there's some deception on when, when you make your movements. But right. I, I don't know how you can do the crackdown on the release of information from private individuals. I know um, there's also been a, a case where uh, in a transit situation, uh, the Wi-Fi and mm -hmm. cell connectivity was shut down to keep uh, protesters from uh, communicating with each other, and that wasn't met well either. Yeah. I, that was actually, I think, um, 
change policy for it's that a, um, transportation agency so that they can never do that again. Right. So right. it's a touchy subject for sure. It is. I think it's a matter of education as most things often tend to be. Um, lastly, for today's segment, and this one, this one actually has a lot of officers and people like myself who was never an officer but is longtime supporter, lifetime supporter of law enforcement, really upset. And it's uh, the, the suicide scandal in um, Illinois that um, uh, an officer there faked his own death, actually shot himself twice, once in the vest and once in the, in the heart, in the chest. Um, and had called in a foot pursuit of three individuals, suspicious individuals. He staged all of his duty gear in a kind of a string that looked like there was a, a scuffle or a fight. And, um, and it turns out that he, had, he, he faked all of this as a consequence of being under investigation for a fairly wide variety of um, infractions, one of which is, you know, he was stealing money from kids to pay for porn. Um, he was kind of in charge of the Explorer program, and he decided that uh, his, his needs were greater than the needs of those young people who want to get in law enforcement. And, uh, and he betrayed them. And, you know, if you remember, Jim, the funeral procession for this, this officer was 17 miles long, and it was at times six people deep on the sidewalk. On Labor Day, they took their, their, their holiday to come out and hold signs that say, Blue Lives Matter, and we see you and we support you, and thank you for being my hero. And those people surely feel totally betrayed. I know that sure. law enforcement officers feel betrayed. Uh, I wrote about this this week, you know, that it's, it's, it's an urgent thing that we need to try to fix that 0.001% because I believe 99.99% of cops are great cops. They're doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. But this guy puts a black eye on law enforcement across the country. It hurts the, the, the movement of people who are trying to help us in a time when law enforcement's under fire. It's just upsetting. What, what's sure. your take no, on Sure, no, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, and I've got to say, some people listening right now are probably saying, why are you giving any kind of credence to this individual when every day there are heroes out there? There are law enforcement officers risking their lives, but we're not talking about them. Well, this is a unique situation, and I have maybe a slightly different perspective in that, um, yeah, the guy did some evil things. He set this thing up to portray himself as a hero, even if even in his final hour of knowing that he was not going to be around to enjoy the, the benefits or the attention. But I think it brings to light, and I think we'll talk about it in future podcasts, the, the police suicide phenomenon mm -hmm. and the post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, phenomenon and the years of stress and um, the toll that the job can take on you. Mm -hmm. And... It manifests itself in different ways. Uh, yeah. Some people retire. Some people turn to alcohol. Um, today's policing is a lot different than when I came in the police department 35 years ago, where there's a lot more support. But clearly, we're not reaching everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a sad case. Um, don't know all the facts yet. But, um, yeah, it, it's a shame that this is, the, this is the final end of this guy's career. Mm -hmm. We don't know what he was like 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, we don't know all the, the good things that he did leading up to this. All we know is the, well, and, the final. And to your, to your point, you, we, you, know, you can't erase, uh, it, according to some reports, and you don't really trust any reports, but according to some reports, he, he started really kind of going on the downhill slide about seven years ago. So that means on the job for 23 or so years, 
he was a great, great cop. And even when he was doing some bad things, surely he did some tremendous work. Sure. And we can't negate that. We can't just put that out of hand. We can't, we can't say that that doesn't exist anymore. His legacy of, of being a hero, of being a great cop for a great long period of time, absolutely still must exist. We can't um, vilify. We can't. But, but I think that this is a, it's a teaching moment. It's a learnable moment where we have to look at, um, you know, when you see an officer who's maybe having uh, that first step towards that slippery slope, right. that's the time right. for intervention. And that's the time to have the, the difficult conversation. And whether or not that's directly one-on-one, -on -one, which is, in my opinion, one of the best ways to intervene, you know, take a guy aside and say, hey, can, let's get a cup of coffee. I want to talk about something I just saw. Sure. Um, and then if needs be, you have to escalate that, you know, take that to a different level, go up to if it's a, you know, sergeant or lieutenant, you know, but informally and say, hey, look, I think we can, we can help this guy or gal out. Um, they just, they're, they're, they're kind of in a weird place. They're in a bad place and we can, you know, come and help our brother or sister out. Sure. And, and then to the point, to the point that it gets to be something that's a disciplinary issue and you got to take it to command staff. It's a courageous thing you, you to do. Just ask Frank Serpico, right? It's, it can be kind of a career killer, but it's, you know, when you see something really that, that makes you go, I don't really, I don't want to ride with that guy because I don't want him to do that around me. I don't want to get into a beef because mm -hmm. of that, you know, it's, it, you got to step it up and say, you know, see something, say something. No, I totally, totally with you on that. And supervision is key there. Supervision's key to catch officers who might be encountering something off the job that influences their performance on the job. Uh, these days, over the last 30 years, we're at a place now where great support mechanisms, employee assistance programs, psychologists, um, behavioral health uh, units, peer support groups, um, more than ever before. But supervision and management really have to keep an eye on officers, uh, look at their traffic accident rate, their sick rate, their um, poor reports, things that are out of character that didn't happen before, and they, they need a key on that. Right. I think the problem usually is the stigma attached to sure. sending someone for help, whether they want it or not. Mm -hmm. And so we've got we've to figure that one out and get over that hurdle yeah. uh, for the sake of the department, the officer themselves, their families, and the community that we serve. Yeah. Very well said. Well, everyone, thank you very much for listening to this segment of Policing Matters with Jim Dudley and Doug Wiley. We'll be back again next time. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Police One Podcast, Policing Matters. I'm Doug Wiley. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. Welcome back. Jim, um, you know, we've had recently up in Oregon and, you know, over the course of the last several weeks and months, uh, a whole number of um, these active shooter scenarios. And let me stop there briefly and, and put in a little PSA um, for something I'd like to see happen over the course of the next several years. It won't change right away, but I'd like to uh, reiterate something that L Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman told me a couple of years ago. Um, he, and I agree, that uh, he thinks that these folks should be called active killers or active murderers. Um, 
because active shooter is it's a bit of a misnomer. I, I'm I'm a shooter. I'm, I participate in shooting sports. I'm uh, you know an enthusiast, and there are many many other folks out there like me, uh, like law enforcement officers or shooters. They're not murderers. They're not killers, but they shoot and they carry guns. Um, many of whom are also gun enthusiasts, and hunting uh, is a part of their life, or um, tr tactical training is a part of their life. So I, I think that I'd like for us to consider. Um, you know, using a different vernacular for these folks, um, and 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 begin to maybe t change that paradigm. I want to at least throw that out there. Sure, no, I hear you, and and I think that reporting of these incidents is certainly changing over the years. It used to be that uh, these uh, shooters were memorialized, um, their names, the number of their victims. Uh, all their planning, their manifestos have even been published. And so the glorifying of these individuals certainly doesn't help, mm -hmm. uh, certainly doesn't help anyone following in their footsteps. And we have had incidents where shooters would come up later and somewhere along the line you'd read that they took into account uh, a previous shooter as part of their plan. And so I think it's important to uh, move away from the, the over-reporting, the glorification of these individuals, for sure. Yeah. Words matter. And uh, let's, you know, I'm not a really big stats guy. I think that there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. That's a Walt Whitman quote. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to at least nod to a couple of the things that we've seen from the FBI's uh, latest reporting on this last year. Um, according to the FBI, the, there are these events now once every three weeks. That's um, That's pretty shocking. And of course, that in order to be considered an active shooter event, there are certain parameters that need to be met. You know, it has to be um, uh, unrelated individuals and certain other things. Um, but and another another stat that kind of struck me in looking at this was um, that one third of these, more than one third, really, I think it was thirty six percent, are over in two minutes or less, and uh, sixty percent of them are over before police have arrived on scene. Um, it's uh, it's it's a different day and age now, and you know the response is significantly different from what, well you know back in Columbine or even prior to that back at the University of Texas the clock tower um, a whole host of things have changed and Jim you know what what have you seen certainly there's there's new tactics and 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 things like that sure so to preface my my remarks. Um, I've studied active shooters, I've gone to several seminars and conferences, uh, some put on by the FBI, and I often refer to the statistics and the reports in the FBI um, reports on their website. Uh, there's a great active shooter guide and resource um, that talks about the shootings that have occurred from the year 2000 to 2013. A lot of great information there. and. Um, they talk about, uh, the, the statistic, statistics may vary from report to report, but I think they talk about 57% of the shootings are still active when law enforcement arrives. And it used to be, back in the day when, when I first started in, in law enforcement, that uh, the plan was to surround, set up a perimeter, and wait for the experts or for sufficient help to engage a, an active shooter. Well, things have certainly changed since Columbine and... Um, in San Francisco, we had our own 101 California mm -hmm. where um, law enforcement officers moved in on several fronts, um, basically ignored the protocols and advanced to contact. And uh, because they knew a lot of people were inside, um, bleeding out, um, 
being shot, mm -hmm. and they knew how important it was to move towards the the shooter. So uh, I think the rest of the nation picked up on that. Uh, training has been now to form up. Um, we, we trained in the, the diamond formation where with it, with a minimum of four officers, you could go in with a point, a rear, and, and one on either flank mm -hmm. to move to contact to the individual. And um, that seems to be the, the standard today to engage the, the shooter rather than wait. Yeah, and you know, you talk about hasty teams and diamond formations, and I, most officers now are have some level of um, sophistication with regard to tactical movement in that you know down hallway scenario type thing, uh, and, and you know clearing stairwells, and that they know how to move, they know what they're going to do. Um, I think though that you you look to what I call the Justin Garner formation, which Justin Garner was in North Carolina um, on patrol on a Sunday morning, and um, a guy came into an old folks home, a kind of a retirement facility, and started shooting the place up. And uh, Justin Garner was the only cop on duty in that town that day. Uh, he called for backup from surrounding uh, agencies, but Justin decided he's going to go in right now, just me. It's going to be me and that me and that assailant. And Justin Garner um, solved that problem uh, and probably saved a lot of lives that day. So it's a, it's a mindset shift, I think, not only from the standpoint of um, no longer making the perimeter and no longer you know, waiting for, for more sophisticated teams and my fingers are up in, in finger quotes because I think that most officers today are much more tactically sophisticated they're getting the much better training across the board and they have the wherewithal and also the will you know, to go in and, and do what Justin did or you know, do what the guys did at, at 101 California who said basically to heck with the rules we're going to stop this certainly and training training is huge we've, we've done active shooter trainings every year. Every year, many departments have integrated that into their training schedule. Uh, you'll see a lot of training on the internet, even to the point where uh, to, to non-sworn and civilian um, businesses, um, we're teaching the uh, run, hide, fight response. Mm -hmm. And um, we really have to put it in the mind of people that that's what it may come to. We talk about uh, evacuation versus shelter in place. And unless you have a really good shelter, like a bank vault, <laughs> it is evacuate, yeah. right, when the, when the active shooter's coming. Mm -hmm. So social media certainly fits in in notifying um, uh, the Gene Cleary Act on college campuses. Say you've yeah. got to warn students when right. there's a problem. Right. And, uh, and when I was at UC Irvine and, and in, in San Francisco State, I've experienced the real-time text alerts on my cell phone that say we have a problem on campus mm -hmm. and I think we're moving to more sophisticated uh, notification systems and I think we're moving in the right direction yeah and to, to to turn a phrase completely upside down speed saves the fact of the matter is is that the more quickly we can get to the problem the more quickly we can fix the problem and you know the the and you know the, speaking too of training I want to make sure to remember to say that um, you know, we're training in ways that were never done before. We're training multidisciplinary. We're training EMTs and firefighters to come into the warm zone surrounded by, you know, two or three cops to help try and triage and deal with the bleeding. Um, we have coppers now um, in Tucson, for example. The, the, all the officers there have been trained to carry an individual first aid kit. And that first aid kit is meant not just for them, but it's meant, and they've had the training to go through, and you can do what you can, you know, first first and foremost, you have to move to contact and fix that problem. But the officers coming through in the second wave, you know, m minutes later, those are golden moments 
to you know to apply some type of first aid, whether it's a tourniquet, a chest seal, or what have you, some sort of gauze bandage, um, you know, or, or quick clot type thing. You know, the faster that stuff happens, and the faster we get those victims evacuated, extracted from the scene, put into ambulances, and brought to the trauma center, the more people we can save. Sure. No, and, and we've learned from just about every one of these incidences. And the first aid kits that we used to have with the, the metal box and Band-Aids mm-hmm. are much more sophisticated with tourniquets and self-rescue mm-hmm. kits and um, helping people on the street, uh, victims of the shooting. It's so imperative. As you say, speed saves lives mm-hmm. in, the, in this instance. Uh, training cop docs or paramedics to mm-hmm. go in with SWAT teams that's happening now. They're integrated in teams across the country. Yeah. You know, locally here in the Bay Area, and now, of course, happening across the country in certain cities, I know Boston and Dallas have done them, um, the Urban Shield scenario training is among the best training I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it's something, if you have the opportunity to fly out to, uh, to the San Francisco Bay Area in October, which, by the way, is beautiful, um, if not to participate in the, in the competition, but just to be in a, a VIP observer, uh, it's an experience you'll never forget, and it's something you'll be able to take home and say, hey, you know what? I can design that scenario. I can get my agency up to speed on that stuff. Sure, and we've seen, I've, I've been through four or five um, Urban Shield uh, trainings and, and um, competitions, if you will, and, and I've seen the winners go from military teams from Israel mm-hmm. to the FBI teams to these other sophisticated train all the time SWAT teams mm-hmm. to local municipalities, mm-hmm. local sheriff's departments that win the Urban Shield because their their training is is more sophisticated. And my motto is always practice like you play and play like you practice. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's the, the kind of training that uh, is going into departments um, training plans these days. It's no more uh, we'll, we'll do the walkthrough session. It's playing hard, playing real. People get dirty uh, using, using simulations, uh, simulations, excuse me, simulations and things like that. So that the, the training is as realistic as you can get it. Yeah, and that, as I say, is um, going to give your officers not just the uh, will, but the wherewithal to actually go in and, and, and respond to these events. Well, uh, once again, we're up on time. I want to thank you for clicking. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Doug. I'm Tim Dudley. Thank you. Thank you for clicking and thank you for listening. You're listening to the Police One Podcast, Policing Matters. My name is Doug Wiley. I'm editor-in-chief of Police One. Hi, I'm Jim Dudley. Welcome back. So, Jim, on the topic of active shooters, we could have probably 15 individual podcast segments on this subject that we may actually wind up getting there. But, you know, looking at active shooters, you know, now for the second time, you and me here on the podcast, um, I think it's pretty important that we look at um, the individuals, some of their behaviors, some of their... um, you know, key indicators that they might be uh, planning such a thing, and some of the ways we can maybe look at some preventative measures. You know, you you wrote a, a really excellent article. I think it was the Atlantic. Is that correct? <laughs> no, no, it was Politico. It was, oh, Politico, it was Politico magazine. Oh. <laughs> a little oh, different. A little different. 
Um, but uh, you know, I, I didn't read the masthead as much as I read your article. Um, so you had some interesting ideas on um, you know, how, to, how to keep the guns out of the, the hands of these mentally in, you know, ill individuals who commit some of these atrocities. Sure, and, and as you know, not everyone who commits these uh, shootings that is mentally ill uh, to the extent that you and I would spot them on the street and say, that person's mentally ill, certainly they shouldn't have a gun. Mm -hmm. But um, in California, we seem to be a little bit ahead of the game as far as um, the 10-day waiting period to, to buy a gun and purchase a gun and, and land it, and uh, the background that's needed uh, before you get your gun. And in the FBI, um, report on active shooters from the years 2000 to 2012, uh, they estimated um, that over, well over 50% of the active shooters of the mass casualty incidents um, obtained their guns legally. That is, that they bought them themselves legally, purchased them, gave their, their own name, filled out their own background sheet, or they were legally obtained from a family member. And certainly we have to put up some kind of a blockade uh, so that they're not so easily accessible by individuals who shouldn't have them. And, you know, so, for example, in California, we have very, very stringent, um, you know, background checks and, you know, me mental health checks on individuals um, legally purchasing firearms at, you know, the, your kind of gun store, you know, Joe, Joe, Joe's gun store, if you will. Um, but in, in other states, that's not quite the same, right? Right. So... California, there's a, the 10-day waiting period. Uh, Ohio, for instance, uh, Nevada, one of our closest neighbors here. Uh, you can go into a gun store in Nevada, and um, and this this really would um, would be um, a case in point if there were a uh, heat of the battle kind of situation where somebody wanted to go out and get a gun and shoot someone. You could go into a store in Nevada pick out the gun of your choice, fill out some paperwork. Uh, you can even go in a, a back room in, in some, um, some uh, stores, do a, um, uh, a qualification, and come out with your gun a few hours later with a concealed weapons permit. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that easy in, in California. I think we've been lucky in, in some of the mass casualty active shooter incidents that, that we haven't seen in other parts of the nation where guns are a lot more easily accessible. Yeah, and you know, the thing of it is that these these individuals, particularly we're you know, really looking at the um, kind of the, the people who have mental health issues, let's say, um, that are, that are they're, they're, they don't have the same thought process probably as you and me, whether or not they're classically mentally ill um, I, I often think about the, um, the, the kind of the gamer community where it's the first person uh, shooter games where you're actually going through kind of um, inoculation training uh, about, you know, taking a life and, and you actually are looking at the last active killer in or the last active murderer and you're trying to one up their score and it becomes uh, an issue, uh, not just allowing access, particularly kids access to guns, but kids access to these violent video games that allows that desensitizes them to the notion of taking a life or, or more than a life and those active killer games those those first person scenario games um you know they act, they actually reward the highest kill uh, number and so you win the game if you will if you get the highest number and i sure. think that that's sending terribly troubling messages to particularly to our kids 
Right. I mean, going back to when we were kids watching these violent cartoons, right? And, mm -hmm. and the, the thousands of acts of violence that we've seen over our lifetime in otherwise nonviolent shows. Mm -hmm. uh, look at the, the best rated TV programs, right? What's, what's the number one? I would, I would wager that The Walking Dead is up there. It's, it's up there. Yeah. And they're not, it's not a gaming video. You're not shooting mm -hmm. real people, but you're, you're desensitized to the violence of yep. hacking and stabbing and shooting. And, you know, they come up with multiple ways of, of killing yep. these, these objects. They're not people, they're yeah. zombies, yeah, right? But right. the effect still right. lingers right. in your psyche. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things, you, you know, as a preventative measure um, that I have uh, been talking about for a number of years, ever since I learned about it, this is not my idea. This uh, is attributed to Lieutenant Dan Marku. Um, he was uh, with uh, an agency in Wisconsin. He actually um, himself responded to an active killer in a hotel. Um, he was off duty at a, um, at a conference, and he's had other contact with active killer um, incidents. And he, he came up with what I think is a very, very brilliant and very simple way that not only law enforcement, but more importantly, friends and family members, um, even colleagues or what have you, can be armed with some thoughts about how to identify some, someone who's in danger of becoming an active killer or is on his way or her way. Incidentally, the last active killer female was literally so long ago that it's out of memory. I can't recall who it was. Um, so the, it's called the five phases of the active shooter. I'll call him the active killer, as I'd previously said. Um, the, by way of reminder, those five phases are the fantasy stage, the planning stage, the preparation stage, the approach stage, and the implementation stage. And in the fantasy stage is when you actually have you know that, that gamer community and the first-person uh, gamer community being affected by this stuff, you know, thinking about, hey, I can do that. Um, or The Walking Dead, or hey, I can do that. You know, they've kind of made the conscious decision that they not only can, but now they want to take a life. Uh, they've crossed that barrier, that threshold. Um, in the planning phase, they're often doing things like keeping journals. And this is where, particularly for young people, parents need to be really proactive about trying to take a, a close look at what their kids are producing, whether it's going to be online um, or it's going to be in the journal. They're actually going to create plans. A lot of these guys, Harrison Klebold did it. Cho did it. They actually keep a fairly detailed log of what they've done. And speaking of Cho, they have preparation, right? So they do oftentimes train, and some of these trainings take place in violent video games. But in the case of Cho, an interesting thing uh, has come to light in recent years that he was going to a gun range, an outdoor gun range, buying five or six targets, paper targets, and he was not putting them on the cardboard. He was placing them on the ground, and the range master clearly did not pick up on what we would call a clue. That was an obvious indicator that the, he was thinking about doing some shooting that um, did not involve, you know, targets. Uh, he was thinking about trying to coup de gras, you know, and finish the job. Um, the approach phase is a very, very difficult phase during which you might intervene. This is when coppers most often have the most influence. T traffic stop, looking funny in the car, what's in the trunk. You know, the, all this, all the key signs that, you know, something's not right with that guy. you got to create a way to detain him for a little bit longer, sure. um, legally, of course. And then the implementation phase. And the implementation phase is obviously actually getting there and starting to, you know, squeeze the trigger and take innocent lives. But 
it's and there's it's, it's far more detailed. You have to go to police1.com and just uh, enter in the five phases of the active shooter. Um, you'll find numerous articles on this. What we what what I want to get across here to to everyone listening is that this is the kind of thing that we could take, like run hide fight, um, like some of the other philosophies that we've talked about, um, t- and take them to your public and take them to you know to to the town hall meeting and say, hey, look, any and not just when after an active shooter happens across the con- country. Take it to them now and take it to them routinely and take the message out there that they are on the first line of defense and they can be very, very helpful to us in, in identifying someone who's either mentally ill or just has that killing penchant. Sure, no, and you said it before, see something, say something, yeah. right? And there were a lot of indicators in, in many of these shootings that someone in the family, someone close to this person probably knew or should have known that things weren't quite right. And we've seen the case where uh, individuals were mollified by their parents or someone in their family by taking them to a gun range mm-hmm. or buying and providing them mm-hmm. them guns. And um, there's, I know there's, there's mental health uh, opposition, mental health professionals who say that if you identify these individuals as mentally ill and, and create some new system that would prohibit them from being able to purchase a gun, you create the stigma and you're more likely to keep them from seeking help. Mm-hmm. And so it, I don't know I don't know about that that sort of attitude. Uh, it, if you don't do anything, if you don't address the problem and you let it end up being an active shooter where you know certainly um, things are going to end wrong poorly mm-hmm. for victims and probably the individual, um, I, I'm not so sure that people think think it all the way through. Mm-hmm. And what could they possibly prevent? As you said, in law enforcement, we're often on scene at the the next to final stage. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really hard to prove a negative. But I can't tell you in San Francisco how many times I've seen uh, mass shootings prevented. Um, a couple of situations. Uh, uh, when we had officers killed uh, with people loading up with automatic weapons, multiple rounds of ammunition, Kevlar body armor, helmets, getting ready to go out and do the dirty deed. And um, it's for the sake of the, those interventions that you don't have these mass shootings. Yeah. But it shouldn't get to that point. We shouldn't have to respond at the, the worst possible, you know, the tinderbox box. Yeah. Uh, stage of the incident. Yeah, you know, it's and the, the the earliest, the earlier, the better. You know, the, we've said it before. Um, speed saves, and if you get to something at the first or the second stage of those five phases of the active shooter, um, you 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 have a really high probability of success. You not only will I make this analogy, particularly when you're talking about. You know, oh, I'm not going to take. I'm not going to report my kid. It's going to get. He's going to be called the the crazy person at school. He's going to be. He's going to be outcast. Which, by the way, he probably already is anyway. Mm. If he's gone down this path, uh, typically speaking, it's not your top tier student. It's not your most popular student who's going to come to school and start shooting the place up. It's someone who's already got difficulties at school. So the 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 notion that I, I can't take my I can't do that to my kid. Well, if I use the analogy. What if your kid had pneumonia? You know, you you don't want your kid to, to, to perish. You want your kid to be well, thrive, be healthy, and, and be successful. And you, so you take them to the doctor. You know, if you, if you show, if you start seeing signs that your child is spending 
12 hours on a Saturday playing some first-person killer game, that's a clue. That's If they're not varying the game to be the driver game first-person, if they're not varying the game to be the flying game first-person, that's the same thing as Cho putting paper on the ground. Right, right. Um, it's the inoculation training. It's, 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 a, it's an indicator. Is it the only indicator you should pay, be paying attention to? No, not by any stretch. There are other things. What are they seeing? What are they saying? What are they doing on the Internet? You know, tr- you've got to maintain some level of um, awareness about what the people in your life around you are doing. And I, I, I focus on kids just there because I think that a lot of the time, th- these the people who are adult active killers have developed that from childhood. That mm-hmm. this is not something right. that started last Tuesday. You know, this is now there are you know certainly scenarios where it's you know the going postal thing sure. surely does happen. Workplace violence like that. But I think that when you look at the people who are really the, the, the plotters and the planners and the people who are looking for the high um, the highest count to over, you know to outdo the last guy, um, th- that's when you can really utilize these five phases. Intervene quickly. And, you know, maybe that person becomes a, you know, a successful member of society. Sure. No, and I, and I agree with you that the, the village concept should be in place. I mean, people who see individuals that are having problems or mm-hmm. going to the range, shooting paper targets on the ground or uh, posting things on the Internet, on social media and things that are violent indicators, these rants, we've seen them mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. Uh, those should be reported. But... I got to say that the government, there's some culpability with the government as well. And one statistic, uh, one one number that I do want to point out is since the 1993 Brady Bill on um, on the gun checks, the background checks. So the National Incident Criminal Background Check System, the NICS, um, talks about um, a database with those uh, mentally ill who've served a commitment. And, and current records as, as recently as six months ago said that there are only 235,000 in the system, when at the same time the FBI's estimate is 2.7 million people should be in that system. Mm. Now that's a disparity that shouldn't last as long as it has, Mm -hmm. and and it's gotta be rectified. Uh, The government charges us taxes, they regulate where we sell guns, the list goes on and on with the government intervention, but this is one that, that certainly has to be fixed. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, to your point, Jim, there's a lot of work to be done. And um, it's, on, it's on not just the government, it's not just on law enforcement, it's, all, it's also on the members of society out there. Um, we're, once again, you know, we could talk all day. We're up on top. I want to thank you for clicking. Thank you for listening to the Police One Podcast, Policing Matters. All right. Take care. Sir.